I just hope you sense the presence of God. Uh, the goal of, of our getting together is, is to just to be real people, who worship a real Lord, and to experience the real presence, and to declare the real world uh, word. Um, we just want to be real about things. There's no uh, hype or anything else. It's just a matter of being honest with what, is, what are the facts. And the fact is that God is real. And the fact is that when you sense his presence, it's just a kind of an overwhelming experience. I don't know if you ever have this experience, but I've had it both services this morning, and it's a sense that when you're in the presence of God, realize that nothing else really matters. It's just uh, it is that nothing else really matters. And there's a sense of freedom there that uh, nothing else could ever give you. It's a, it's a sense of just liberation. I've had a, this, this kind of feeling all, all morning long, and... Um, Since I got up about six this morning and was just sort of praying, and I, I right from the start had this this really awesome awareness of of uh, of this that what I, what I want to communicate is completely beyond the realm of communication, and it feels like the, the sense I had this morning praying was was that um, I felt like a person who was trying to describe how high Mount Everest is with a little ruler, and and I and I, I was like. Going, well, it, it's, it's this high. Well, no, no, actually, it's, it's this high. Well, actually, it's, it's this high. And, of course, even if I could jump a lot higher than that, I wouldn't even begin to be beginning to tell how high Mount Everest is. The most you can do is kind of say, well, it's, it's in that direction. <laughs> and, uh, and then ask the person to look up <laughs> and, and maybe begin to see it. Of course, you can't even see the top. Well, I want to talk this morning about who we are as believers and I believe that if we get this, if we just take a glance up and see how high the mountain is, we'll drop to our knees, we'll melt. The sense I have is that God is, we know, the greatest of all beings. There could not be a being greater than God. And what he does is the greatest conceivable things. You could not do anything greater than what God does. And what God's greatest work is is what he has in store for you and me as the body of Christ. The passage we're going to read here this morning says that we are the bride of Christ. I guess what I'm saying is this. If, if, if words can have any... If, if God can use the words this morning, and he'll have to be the one who does it, but if God can use the words to, do, to sort of cause the coin to drop in the slot and waken us up to, to look up and see the reality, we will see... That the truth about who you are in Christ and the truth about who I am in Christ and the truth about who we are collectively as the bride of Christ could not possibly be better than it is. In the end, your wildest dreams about what life could be like are true. In fact, they're just saying, well, it's in that direction. What God has in store for us and what this thing called existence is about for all who will simply say yes to God's program is so breathtakingly beautiful and so breathtakingly exciting that if we can but get a whiff of it it revolutionizes your life eye hasn't seen the ear hasn't heard it's never even entered in the imagination of uh, of those uh, in the imagination of man what God is in store for those who love him and all of that circulates around what we're going to be talking about this morning. In fact, we won't get done with it this morning. We'll go next week, and, and we're going to go until 
until it runs out. Um, I, I'm going to be talking about the church, and the church is the bride of Christ. And if you're wondering if I was going to preach a Christmas series, uh, this is my Christmas series. Uh, Jesus was born in a manger to, to get a bride. Praise God. This is the meaning of Christmas. Hallelujah. Um, oh, we might take a little uh, uh, Christmas Eve, we'll have a special thing on Christmas Eve service, but this is all about Christmas, folks. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. People who think that being a Christian is primarily about believing four things different than other people believe, and people who think that being a Christian is about doing six things different than other people do, and people who think that the church is about going, going someplace on Sunday morning and having a human organization, don't even come close to scratching the surface of, of what it's all about. Being a Christian and being the church and being saved is about who we are about who we are. It's not primarily about, though it has implications for what we believe, nor is it primarily about, though it has implications for what we do. But what it's primarily about and what fuels everything else is who we are. And who we are, if we can just but get a glimpse of it, a whiff of it, is unfathomably more exciting and more beautiful than anything we can ever imagine. Husbands, love your wives. I love the way Paul just goes from the practical to the exalted ethereal in one breath. Listen to this. He's talking about marriages. Husbands, Love your wives. That's revolutionary in the first century. Usually they just say, control your wives. But he goes, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Tall order there, men. Why did he do that? Well, verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church. I'm going to talk about that next week. The radiant church, the radiant bride, the glowing bride, literally. A bride that glows. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, pure. Hallelujah. And in the same way, oh, husbands, swallow this if you can. Husbands ought to love their wives in that way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he fe feeds it and cares for it. You pamper yourself, right? Just as Christ does the church. Christ pampers the church. For we are members of his body. And now with this, we are entering into, I think, the most profound, uh, impenetrable mystery in the word of God. Verse 31. We are members of his body. Okay, we, we're his bride, we're his wife, and now we're members of his body. How is that? He says in verse 31. He quotes Genesis chapter 2, what Adam said when Eve uh, was, was invented. For this reason, ah, this is why, this, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The mystery of holy matrimony, when the two become quite literally now one. Paul says this is a profound mystery. But now look, look, look what he says next in verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What he's saying is, you think the mystery of how two can be one is mysterious on a human level? Well, what I'm talking about is about Christ and the church. In fact, what he's saying there is that the real one, the real reality to which the verse in Genesis applies, of cleaving and uniting and becoming one flesh, the primary thing that that applies to is Christ's relationship to the church and the church's relationship to Christ. The fact that it does it in a marriage is the secondary thing. That's, 
the illustration of the primary truth. The primary truth is the way Christ unites with his wife. His wife is the church. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The two shall become one flesh. However, each one of you, now he's talking to husbands again, must also love his wife as he loves himself. Just like Christ did it, you do it. And the wife must also respect her husband. Let's pray. Father, I got a little ruler in my hand, and I can jump about a foot off the ground, but I'm talking about Mount Everest. And so, Lord, you're just going to have to grab our chins and point us upward on this one. Lord, uh, I will be frustrated to no end if I try to do this. But God, there is something so power-packed, so beautiful here, Lord. And I, Lord, sense that there are people here this morning, and I'm one of them, who desperately need to hear this and to believe it and then live it. So, Lord, through your Spirit, who alone can do this kind of thing, through your Spirit, use the silly little jumping and the silly little yardstick of human language that I have and give it reality, Lord, and make it about a mile long so it hits to the top, Lord. And, and God, be using this to create out of this people here a bride, a beautiful bride that you're going to be excited about throughout eternity. We pray in your name. Amen. 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 Most people, I think you'd agree, most people don't have a real good clue. The Bible says they live in darkness. Um, and they don't have a clue as to what really the ultimate goal of history is. For most people, their, their schedule stops in, in terms of what I'm going to do by the end of this week. Uh, or maybe what I have plans at the end of my college career. Or maybe my plans, my, a five-year plan for a job. Um, or something of that sort. Or maybe even some life plans about how they want to get married and have kids. But for most people, it stops there. It certainly stops with their lifetime. They don't think about the scope of history. Most people sense that there must be, I think, most people sense there must be a point to this whole thing called creation, a point to this whole thing called human history, but they don't really know what it is. Maybe a lot of people in our culture have some vague idea that it has something to do with this little kid we celebrate once a year, but the, the, the pieces don't all fit together. They're not sure how it all fits in. It is true for most people what, what Macbeth said, what Shakespeare said in Macbeth, that it could be that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound, passion, and fury, signifying absolutely nothing. Some madman telling a story, just getting off on all the points he's making, and it's really making the story, but it goes nowhere. You maybe listen to people talk like that. Maybe life is like that. To a lot of people, they wouldn't know it if it was or wasn't like that. People build empires, they get passionate about it, they have plans, they have schemes, they have dreams, they have agendas, and they're passionate about it, and they live as though there was a point to the whole thing, but... It might just turn out that this thing is pointless. Maybe the whole thing just swallows up into some gigantic black hole and we're all nothingness when all is said and done. And so it doesn't make a bit of difference whether you've ever lived or not lived. But it looks as though there's a point to the whole thing. But see, the Bible tells us that, as a matter of fact, there is a point to this whole thing. You'll never know what the significance of your life is until you have some idea about what the significance of the whole thing is because you're just a part of the whole, right? The Bible tells us what the significance for the whole thing is. There is a theme to this story. There is a, a theme to history because it is literally his story. It is God's story. There is, in fact, an ultimate mind behind this thing called history. Now, there's also a lot of other minds involved, namely your mind and my mind. We each write the story of history with our own lives, with our own decision, with the way that we use the free will that God gave us. We write our own stories... And so the overall theme of, this, of the giant story isn't always that clear. 
But in general terms, there is an author who oversees the operation of the whole thing, who causes the ship to be going in one particular direction. There is an author to this story called history. And it's driving at a single point. Now, sometimes you've read novels and the novel's not making a lot of sense. I, I imagine most of you have read novels like that and you wonder, what's the point of this whole thing? Have you ever read novels like that? And what I found is that when you're in a situation like that, one of the things that helps to do is to go to the back of the book and, and read the last chapter. It's like, and in fact, I recommend that because some stories actually don't make a point and you'll spend a lot of time reading this stupid thing and, and, and get to the end and you'll say, well, what's that? So read the end first and then you'll find out what, what the person's driving at and that will make sense of the whole thing. If you want to know the point of a story, look at the last chapter. Look how the thing wraps up. And so it is with history here. There's a lot of ambiguous, crazy, wild thing, things because there's a lot of decision-making on the part of people who are not God and things get really screwed up. But... If you want to find out what the whole thing's driving at, what the whole theme is, what the major motif of this whole creation is, look at the end of the book. And when you look at the end of the book, you'll find that it has something to do with the chapter we read this morning, with Ephesians chapter 5. It has something to do with this weird talk about Christ and a bride. What you find is when you look at the end, how does the story wrap itself up? It wraps itself up like this. This was knocking me to my knees when we were singing the song Almighty. Then I heard a sound. John and his frenzy of visions at the end of the book of Revelation as God is just overloading his brain with these wild, surrealistic pictures of how the whole thing's going to wrap up. This is the final video he sees, and it says this. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, a great multitude. Many, 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 many peoples gathered together in one place, and they were all shouting this. It sounded to him like the roar of rushing waters. Have you ever gotten really close to the bottom of a, of a, of a great waterfall like Niagara Falls? It's got this thunder. You know, the ground shakes. There's this thunder to the whole thing. It says, and like loud peals of thunder, like thunderclaps of lightning. And they were all shouting. These people were all shouting. You see, when you see something that is really exciting, sometimes, just sometimes, even in church, yes, you shout because you can't help but shout. You say, wow, I went to the football game yesterday and there's a couple times where we got excited about a pigskin and we went, yeah, did you see that catch by Anthony Carter? It was incredible. Dave Churchill stood up and gave the whole, all the bleachers this commentary. I never saw a catch like that in my life. Because some things, when they're exciting, you start shouting about it. You can't help yourself. It's really quite appropriate. You'd be weird if you didn't do that. And then we have all these rules about how you're supposed to keep quiet. It just doesn't make sense. How you're supposed to keep quiet in church, but you can go ahead and shout it at a football game. Someone someday, please explain to me the rationale of that crazy idea. Here we are, folks, the last chapter. Get on task, Greg. It says, they're all shouting, hallelujah. They're shouting, hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Picture that with the, the, the sound of the thunder at the bottom of Niagara Falls, the th sound of a thunderclap that struck two feet away from you. The Lord, the Lord our, God, our, God, our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? Because here's the thing. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Note that the fine linen doesn't make her the bride, but now that she's the bride, she wants to dress appropriately. That's what Christian living is all about. And then the angel said to me, write this, you've got to write this one down, blessed are those, 
Blessed are those, anointed are those, fortunate are those, there's not a word for this one, but you will realize what you've got are those who have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These words, whatever you may think, are true words of God. You see, the idea here is, in fact, in the Greek it has the sense of finally the wedding of the Lamb has come. This story's been a long time coming, but you see, God, from God's perspective, is sort of, sort of you know, a very, pretty quick thing. But from the human perspective, it's been a, and from the angelic perspective, it's been a long time coming. It's been something of a drudgery. In fact, it's, they tell us it's been going on for millions and millions and millions of years. And, and then throughout the, all of human history, there's been ups and there's been downs and there's been ebbs and there's been flows and empires have come and empires have gone and lives have come and lives have gone and sometimes the good wins and sometimes the evil wins. And the point of the whole story is not always that clear. Tragedies happen to good people. But here we find all the multitudes of heaven, all the angels of heaven, and all the saints of heaven shouting with everything that's within them. Finally, the point of the story has arrived. This is the climax of the whole thing. And the climax, folks, is what the Bible describes as a wedding feast, what the Bible describes as a banquet, what the Bible describes as a party, what the Bible describes as an incredible, amplified worship service. And the thing is going to go on throughout eternity. And all the joy we have in this life is simply an approximation of the joy we're going to have on that day. Amen? All the parties we ever throw in this world are simply anticipations of the party that we're going to be throwing throughout eternity as we're wedded with Jesus Christ. And all the worship services we ever have, even the best ones, even ones like this morning that knocked me on my knees, are simply ways of rehearsing for that wedding time, that party, that feast, and we are going to be shouting at the top of our lungs, glory, 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 hallelujah is the Lord God Almighty, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and we are his bride, praise God. And what a day that's going to be, what a day that's going to be, amen. Shout hallelujah, hallelujah, shout hallelujah, hallelujah. Now magnify that 10 billion times, and you got an idea what that's going to be like. And what it tells you, though, is this. The, what's the point of the whole thing? What's it all about, Angie, the song said? What's it all about? It's all about Jesus Christ wanting to get married. I know it sounds very, very strange, but tell me I'm wrong. Jesus Christ wants a bride. And the whole, the whole point of this whole thing is he wants to get married. Now, now, he doesn't want to get married for the reason most of us want to get married. <laughs> all right? It's not like he's got a, a need in his heart. He's lonely. It's not that he has a deep caveat in his soul. It's not that he, you know, wants to feel young again. <laughs> All the reasons we get, I don't know why we get married, but God is the eternal triune God whose love is unsurpassable and perfect, who cannot be added to and he cannot be subtracted from. And he is, in terms of his own self-love, in terms of his own self-light, within the triune Godhead, there is no deficiency, there is no caveat, there is no hole, there's nothing that needs to be filled. So why then does Christ want a bride? Well, you see, why do, why do healthy couples have kids? Healthy couples have kids not because these kids are going to give them life. That's not a healthy couple that does that. They don't have kids because there's something deficient in their marriage. If you have a kid to fix your marriage, you know what? It's not going to work. That's not a good reason to have kids. Healthy couples who are in love with one another, there's something about the nature of love, genuine love, healthy love, that wants to replicate itself there's something there that wants to overflow, something there that wants to flow out, something there that wants to bring another in on this relationship as though to say, 
What we have is so good. What we have is so wonderful. We want to let another share in it. And the very love, now this is in the marriage context here, folks, the very love that is already there, the very completeness of the love that is already there, very naturally brings forth another being who can participate in it. And that's what it is to have children. And in just the same way, God in his own triune identity is perfect love. The Bible tells us that God is love. There's something like an I and a thou, a loved and a beloved, and, and a love that binds them together in the, in, the, in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this love is the definition of perfect love. It cannot be improved. It is infinitely intense. It is passionate. It is heart-throbbing. It is glorious. It is delightful. And precisely because God is so full, he brings forth the possibility of others joining in. He brings forth, he says, we got to replicate this. we got to... We, we, we need to bring others in and share in this dance of ours. We need mirrors to mirror in the same way that a kid, a healthy kid, will mirror the love. It's a reflection of the love that the parents have. And it looks a little bit like, maybe a lot like, the love that the parents have. So also God makes human beings who are in, what does the Bible say? We're in the image of God. We're little God lookalikes. And he makes us this way because he's got a destiny. We're going to talk about this next week. But he's got a destiny and a calling and a plan. Whereas the Bible says in, first, in 2 Peter 1.4, he wants wants us to participate in his divine nature. He wants us to be included in his love. He wants us to be included in this divine dance. He wants others to participate in the joy of who he is by nature. He, want, uh, he wants us to have by grace what is, his, what is his by nature. He wants, the Bible says, a bride. He wants to share this love with somebody. He wants to pour his life into another. And he creates the world and he pursues the church in order to have a bride. And throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, you have the people of God being referred to as the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ is looking for a bride. That's the point of the whole thing. In fact, I, I never noticed this before, but I just read it last night. John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, verse 29, he says, I have to decrease that he may increase. Why? Because I am the best man, but he is the groom. And the best man, when the groom shows up, the best man simply rejoices that the groom has found his bride. Jesus Christ came down to earth. Here's the meaning of Christmas, folks. Came down to earth to get a bride. To get a bride. And the point of the whole thing is for him to be married and for him to have a spouse. And the way he set it up, and this is absolutely, absolutely incredible, is that anyone who simply says, I do, gets to come. He says to the world, will you marry me? And everyone who says, yeah, you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everyone who says, no, you're not. So the point of it is say, say yes. <laughs> say yes to this one. And let him betroth you with a seal, the ring of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Now, there's a number of things that this passage says about this bride that is breathtaking and incredible. I want to talk about one of those this morning. I, I, have, I have four or five. Uh, and I'm going to take time. I want to get all five this morning, but we're not going to do that. I'll talk about one. The first thing is this. It comes out of the first verse where, where it says that Jesus Christ gave, loved the church and gave himself for her. It says something about the character of, our, of the groom... And it says something about the worth of the bride. You know what something is worth to somebody by what they're willing to pay for it or by how much they're willing to sacrifice for it. I make a lot of jokes about my car. I can tell you another story about it, actually, now that I think about it. It happened last week uh, as I lost my salvation once again over this stupid car because it makes me so mad. But you know what? I, I, I joke a lot about that, and I talk about that, and maybe I should talk to Lyle. Hey, anyone got a car? But you know what? Here's the thing. If cars were important to me, I mean, I say, oh, I need a car. But you know what? If, I really, if, I, if that was a priority for mine, I'd find a way to get one. 
I find a way. The fact that I keep on driving around this piece of metal called a, a, a piece of metal with four wheels and something that resembles an engine, I suppose, the fact that I drive that shows you that obviously having a good car isn't a high priority to me. Now, for other, a lot of other people, having a good car is a very high priority, and so they put their bucks where their mouth is. They say a car is important, and they mean it, and they go out and spend $20,000 on a car. I say a car is important, but I keep on driving around in something that actually the, the only thing it's worth is the gas I put in it, so obviously it doesn't mean much. Or some people are really into good clothes, you know, and so they'll pay 100 bucks or more for a nice outfit. Others of us, clothes isn't a high priority, and we look at those price tags and we go, no way, goodwill here I come. <laughs> how much are you willing to give for this? I work a whole day for $100, I'm not going to blow it on a stupid sweater. Or so it is with everything. People, you know, what is the ministry to you? What is the work of the kingdom of God? You know, that's one. People say, oh, this is the most important thing in life. But the question is, well, then, how does that impact you? What difference does it make in your life? How do you sacrifice for it? Someone for whom it is really the most important thing in their life, they find a way to make sacrifices for it, to, to support it and whatnot. And people for whom that's not a reality just never quite have any extra to give for that. You put your money where the, your mouth is. You, the worth is found in how much you're willing to give for it. I one time went to an antique store. My wife and I, when we were desperately poor in graduate school, and I walked into an antique store, but I thought it was a junk store. And, and we were looking for a little cabinet to put our silverware in. Uh, uh, and, and, and so I walked in this junk store, and, and there was this uh, uh, piece of wood that looked something like a desk, and it was old and, and kind of, you know, ah. and, but, you know, it would work, and so it had three, it, it said 340 on it, so I thought, $3.40, maybe I can talk it down to $3.20, that's how tight it was back in those days, so I said, I'll give you $3.20, she goes, what? This is worth $3.40, uh, $3.40 final deal, well, I thought, okay, and, and I remember saying to Shelly, I said, you know, if we lap off the top of it, maybe it will fit under this space that we have. I remember her going like, oh, like, like this, you know, like, oh. well, I get up there and I bring out $3.40. And, and, and she goes, what is this, some kind of a joke? I said, no, you, remember you came down five cents. She goes, sir, do you have an idea that that is a, and she gave me a name that I don't recognize, that is a boom, 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 from 1926, there's only 74 of those made or something like that, and I go, you know, it's a piece of junk. What are you talking about? Because what? When, I, when it says $345, that's $345. And if you knew anything at all about antiques, you'd know that that is an out-and-out -out steal. And I couldn't believe that someone would pay $345 for that silverware holder, but some people would. Because if you know something about it, it has that value. The, the, it's, it's in the eye of the beholder. And, and, and so if you know the background of what it is to be made in 1926 of that kind of brand, there's only 74 of them made, you'll pay that money. Maybe you'll pay more than that. But some ignoramus like me, it doesn't have that value. Now here's the thing. Here's the, here, here's the point. Every person in life, the most fundamental question they ask, we, we talked about this last week, the most fundamental question that every person in existence asks themselves, it gets you out of bed, it motivates most of what you do. The question is, what am I worth? What is my value? What is my substance? What is my significance? What is the meaning of my life? Am I loved? Do I have worth in anyone's eyes? It's the most fundamental question a person can ever ask. And most people, not knowing any better, think that you've got to answer that question by looking at the world around you. They think that you answer that question by constructing what we said last week was the outer quarter inch. That outer quarter inch. You invest how you look, you invest your body, you invest what you own, you invest the, the things you wear or whatever with a whole lot of significance because you're trying to get life. You're trying to get worth. We were made, we were made to have worth. We are literal black holes, walking around black holes of worth, needing worth. If you don't know any better, you invest those ex that external quarter inch with a lot of, of power to try to give you significance. Did some of you see this 2020 special that was on this last week? Uh, Barbara Walters, 
She was interviewing this lady that poured $100,000 so far into reconstructive surgery. And this lady is 40 years old now. She, she works just for the purpose of reconstructing her body. And uh, uh, she's a very intelligent lady, very articulate and very honest. And she says exactly why she's doing all this. She says, because I have found that, now I may, you may not like it, it may not be politically correct, but this is what's true. Women are valued more by how they look. If you want to be anybody, you've got to have the right kind of hair. If you want to be anybody, you've got to be what I'm trying to be, and that's Barbie. You've got to be a Barbie. You've got to have the right kind of body. You've got to have the right kind of shape. And so she's had these breast implants and these liposuctions and all these other kind of things. 22 different surgeries she's had, and she says she's still not done. Trying to get some worth, trying to get some value. Will somebody please like me? The sad thing is that even if she gets it, she's not going to get it because she'll be liked for how she looks, and it never gets to the soul. We're all longing for that. If there's anything I want to say here this morning, it is this. If you have said yes to Jesus Christ, you are his bride. And if you are his bride, the last thing in the world you should ever do is to give something like your jawbone or your breast size or your hair length or your skin color the authority to tell you what you are worth. In fact, if you are a bride, the bride of Christ, Letting anything, and I mean anything, in this world, including your past, including past parents perhaps, including siblings, including friends, maybe including the voices you hear right now, giving anything in this world the authority to tell you what you're worth, giving anything the authority to put a price tag on your head, is simply shooting infinitely below the worth that you actually have. In the ancient world, you know, they used to, a, 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 a woman, a, a father would put a price on his daughter. It was called a dowry. This is what the daughter was worth. He would state a price. It's a barbaric practice. It's still practiced in parts of the world today, however. And it was all throughout the ancient world, and the Bible knows a whole lot about it. And the deal here is this. Depending on how pretty she was, depending on how sexy she was, and depending on what kind of inheritance a person could get, he'd set a price. And anyone who wanted to marry his daughter had to pay that price. It's a dowry. And so what we need to understand as the bride of Christ is this. If you get this, if you get just one glimpse of it, if you just look up Mount Everest for a second, it's going to revolutionize the way you look at yourself. We were, in fact, under a father, a tyrant. We had sold out, the whole race had sold out, the Bible says, and made, made Lord of this planet, one called Satan. And we were in, folks, a desperate situation. A desperate situation so that it took extreme measures to get us out of it, the most extreme measures to get us out of this trouble. And that set a dowry on our head. And what we've got to see this morning, but we've got to see this this morning, and Holy Spirit be moving as I'm talking here to open up our eyes to see how this is true of each and every person who says yes to Jesus Christ, is that the dowry on our head, you know, here's what Christ thought about you. The Bible says he loved the church and he gave himself for it. He gave himself. So what is the value of the bride that we're talking about? Well, what was the payment for this bride? What was the one who was in a position to know willing to pay for it? There were some who were like me in an antique store that said, this is worth very, very little, folks. Very little. It will never amount to anything. We'll never be able to work out. We'll always be going against the grain. We'll never be a success. But what do those people know when the creator of the universe says, what is the value of this? I give myself for this. Here's my payment. I empty the bank on this, and I... I'm just beginning when I empty the bank because now I laid down my life. What the Lord is saying here, folks, if we can get a whiff of this, is that the value that his bride has is the value that he has because that's what he's willing to pay for it. The righteousness that his bride has is the righteousness that he has. The glory that his bride has is the glory that he has. 
And the love that he loves the bride with is the same love that he loves himself with. Which is why Paul says, husbands, love your wives as you love yourself, just as Christ loves the church. Because Christ loves the church. Can we believe this? With the same intensity that he loves himself. We are brought into the celebration of the triune God and made objects of God's love with the same passion, the same perfect intensity, the same unsurpassable romance, as it were, that characterizes God throughout eternity, which is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, that we are loved by God in the Beloved. That is to say, we are made members of Jesus Christ, and we are loved by God the Father with the same love that he loves the Son, Jesus Christ. The bottom line is this. The question is, what are you worth? And the answer is everything. What are you worth? Well, apparently, emptying out all of heaven to buy you was a deal, because that's what Christ did. What are you worth? And don't think, what is humanity as a whole worth? Think, what is Greg Boyd worth? What is Marsha worth? What is Julie worth? What is Doug worth? What is Bob worth? What is Bill worth? What is Betty worth? What are you worth? Put your name on this one. What are you worth? Apparently, leaving all the glory and the splendor and the joy of heaven to become a little baby in the manger was counted as a deal. That's what you're worth. What are you worth? Apparently, going to the cross and getting a crown of thorns put on his head and the blood running into his eyes and being pierced in the side was considered a steal because he did it for you. You must be worth it. What are you worth? Apparently, being spit upon and dying a damnable death and then the all-holy one taking upon himself all the sin of the world, like, like, like a human being swallowing all the cyanide you can get your hands on. You're allergic to it, it makes you sick, and it kills you. So also, sin is cyanide to God. But on the cross, God takes that which he is allergic to, he pours it upon himself, all the sin of the world, in order to free you, and he descends into hell. Apparently, God, dying a damnable death, is considered a steal because that's what he was willing to pay for you. What are you worth? Jesus Christ thinks that you have the same worth that he has, the same righteousness that he has, the same beauty that he has. You are his bride, and he pours out his entire existence in order to have you. That is what you're worth. Can you say amen? That is what you're worth. That is your beauty. That is your value. So the bottom line is that, in answer to that question, what are you worth? The answer is, you're more precious than anything in the universe. You could look all around the universe, get all the money, all the diamonds, all the gold, everything that has any kind of value whatsoever, collect it all together, put it in a giant cosmic storehouse, and offer it for you. And it would be in relationship to the value that you already have in Jesus Christ, what a grain of sand is next to all the beaches on the planet. It is nothing. What are you worth? He never did this for the angels. We're made a little lower than the angels, but our destiny, we'll see in the next week, is much higher than the angels, because you are his beloved bride. He loves you, and he gives himself for you, praise God. That is what you're worth. And if we can get just but a glimpse of that, get a whiff of that, begin to see that, then you begin, then, you know what? In our culture, we talk a lot about self-esteem. People worry a lot about self-esteem, and we try to get it by saying, well, you know, I'm a nice person, and by golly, people like to be around me. Uh, I do my job well, and I got nice hair, and I, you know, I think on the positive things, and you, we struggle and struggle to get self-esteem. Everyone's into the self-esteem. And, and you know what? Kids need self-esteem, and, 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 and people need self-esteem, so fine, use that stuff. But you know what? For the bride of Christ, for the bride of Christ, you're shooting way, way, way. I'm talking infinitely way too low when you shoot at stuff like that, because that issue of what your esteem is 
has got to be settled this way. You decide that the only one who really knows what you're worth is not mom, not dad, nobody else. The one who knows your worth is the one who paid the price for you, and that is your creator, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are his bride. And so the whole thing, praise God, is going to this end. You guys, why don't you come? Is the team here? Yeah, get ready. I want the team to play the song again. We are the bride of Christ. We're going to talk more about this next week because we haven't even talked about the place he's prepared for us and uh, the, the, the goal he has for us. But you know what? As the bride, you can know this. Maybe this morning you are in the pit of hell. But as a believer, you're still the bride of Christ. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to close the service this way. Look to this wedding date. Those of you who got married, remember how, how anxious you were to have that happen, how you anticipated it, how you savored it? What's it going to be like? I can't wait. This is going to be great. Let's do that with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the bride. We got, you guys, if anyone has a reason to shout, if anyone has a reason to be happy, if anyone has a reason to feel in love with themselves, it is us. Us who have had this price tag on us. It says here on that, on that day, we are going to shout as a great multitude, all believers, all who are the bride, like a roar of a rushing water, like peals, thunderclaps of thunder. And we will, folks, in that day be shouting, and we in that day will be dancing, and we will be celebrating because we'll be saying, glory to God in the highest, the Almighty, who in His grace has declared that His glory would shine through us. And now we are at the point that the history of the ages was going towards. We are at the wedding supper of the Lamb.